Hey everyone, just a quick note that time is running out to register for ACSA's 10th Anniversary Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show. This February 10th through 12th, join us in Portland, Oregon, where we'll celebrate 10 years of ACSA. Register now at AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Thanks. Like, as much as I loved being a journalist, as much as I did enjoy doing you know, public relations and marketing, there was something about distilling that for the first time ever, I felt like this is what I want to do. Like this is no matter where I may be, no matter what I might be making, this is, this is the industry I want to be in and this is what I want to be working with. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, A Journey to the Desert. Our guest today is Mark A. Viertaler, the head distiller at Tucson, Arizona-based Hamilton Distillers Group, which produces Whiskey Del Bach. He was also elected to ACSA's Board of Directors in 2022, and he has experience working at 10th Ward Distillery and Boot Hill Distillery. Later in this episode, we talk about Mark's journey from a distillery that dabbles in nearly all categories to one that focuses on American single malt. But first, we discussed Mark's path to distilling. And I should also note that this conversation took place in late 2022. If your current self was going back and talking to college Mark about what you do now and and telling college Mark, like, you're going to be a head distiller, uh what would you expect college aged mark to say I, nah really that's so cool <laughs> it's uh yeah i mean you're right it's such a it, it it is it is so unexpected um but not unappreciated uh there's a quote from douglas adams who is one, one of my favorite authors, uh, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, you know, Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, just very, very British humor, very kind of wry, but with a heart. And uh, there, there's a quote of his that I've actually told my wife that, like, I want it to be my epitaph. And that is, I may not have gone where I intended to go, but I think I have ended up where I intended to be. Mm. That it's you know similar like i mean leaving high school you know you're a kid you have no idea what you want to do you're you're just kind of you know whatever comes at you is what is what you're going to kind of pursue and you know i went into college completely expecting that i was going to be an actor uh, <laughs> i was like i'm i'm going to go to theater school i'm going to get you know my mfa i'm going to do you know i'm going to live in new york i'm going to do stage plays uh, and to save some money, I did what a lot of people do. And I did two years at my local community college and I kept doing plays there. I was doing theater stuff with the local theater and the, uh, the, uh, well, the advisor, I guess, is what you would call her who ran the student newspaper actually reached out to me and she was also my speech professor and she basically said, she goes, you know, you, you seem to have a knack for speaking. Do you, you know, have you ever thought about writing? And I was like, you know, I'm going to be honest. No, like that's, you know, never really occurred to me as an option. And she's like, well, you know, if you're interested, you know, you, 
we'd let you write for the, the student newspaper and, you know, you can take my journalism courses. And I was like, well, you know, again, no, 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 I'm, I'm dead set. I'm going to be an actor. That's what I'm going to do. And she's like, okay, we'll just start, start with like reviews. And so I started doing like album reviews for music because <laughs> like, that seems fun. Like I, I got a stipend. So the newspaper would buy my CD for me and I'd get to sit there and write, you know, several hundred words on, on oh God, I think like one of the first ones I did was uh, the new, oh God, I'm going to blink Jet. Like Jet had just dropped their oh, first nice. album. Yeah. yeah. So like, yeah, let's, let's write about that. And then, you know, Green Day's American Idiot. And like, I just kind of found that I really, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed kind of, you know, finding my voice. Um, I have to give a lot of credit to that first journalism professor, uh, Stacy Sparks. She, She's the one who kind of put me onto that path to journalism and, you know, really encouraged me to dig deep into it. And I always joke the very first article I ever submitted or first column I ever submitted, it looked like someone had slaughtered a cow over it. Yeah. That just, <laughs> she took her red pen and was like, this is grammatically incorrect. This is phrased awkwardly. This is, but, but something clicked and I you know, decided to switch my major from theater to journalism, uh, did my two years at the community college, uh, decided I wanted to go to the University of Kansas to get my journalism degree there because KU has one of the best journalism schools in the country, uh, William Allen White. And I will admit it, I was been kind of a slacker student in high school and even maybe the first couple of years in college. And uh, the journalism school actually made me petition to get in. They were like, your, G your GPA is not high enough and you're a transfer student. And so petitioned to get in, got in, and then just went all in on it. Um, just really became fascinated with investigative journalism. Um, the idea of taking single thoughts or single themes and really digging into them. And uh met other journalists who had lots of experience, you know, and journalists who had had an impact on the world with their reporting. And just that more and more kind of grew within me of like, okay, this is what I want to do. And so I got my Bachelor of Science of Journalism and became invest uh, an investigative reporter, uh, mostly covering crime and cops and, and government, specifically like local and regional government. And enjoyed it, but it was insane hours, um, just long hours. You're naturally pissing people off <laughs> with the articles that you're writing. I mean, by the very nature of it, you're just, as an investigative reporter, you're tending to report on things people don't want you to know about. And it, it just kind of became tiring. Um, had the opportunity to go back to the Kansas City area. I worked at the Lord's Journal World newspaper for just a couple of months and uh, ended up leaving there to go back to my hometown of Dodge City, Kansas, and take over as the managing editor of the daily newspaper there. And kind of a similar thing. Like, I I, I loved it. I was way too young <laughs> to have been in that position. I was 24 and running a daily newspaper. You know, my reporters were over a decade older than me and made a lot of mistakes, um, learned a lot but had just gotten married and was working from about 7 a.m. to 2 a.m. seven days a week. And around that time was 
when a lot of the newspapers started struggling, you know. Yeah, we should didn't say really this, know. this wasn't the golden era of newspapers. No, it was not. Newspapers, unfortunately, never figured out how to lean into the internet thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so just decided that, you know, I, I was tired of killing myself for the job. Um, in the year that I was the managing editor, I lost, I think, 20 pounds. Mm. Like, so it was just like, yeah, this isn't sustainable. And so I did what a lot of journalists do. I left journalism to go into public relations and marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we can have a, a completely separate discussion on the ethics of that and how there is a problem that there are three times the amount of PR people to the amount of reporters out there, but that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> um, but yeah, ended up taking over as the director of communications for a, a national agricultural company that had their corporate headquarters um, in Dodge in Kansas, where I was. And, you know, did that for, for about seven years, um, handled all of their public relations, all of their marketing, all of their internal and external communication, but at the same time, again, I, my passion at the time and still kind of lay within writing. And so one day I got onto Facebook of all places and I posted this random one-off comment that was like, tonight's cocktail is a, is a Kentucky Irish coffee or a Kentucky, something along those lines. And one of my friends got on and was like, wait, so you're telling me you're going to make a brand new cocktail every day? <laughs> I was like, that's actually, that's a great idea. <laughs> and so I started this blog where every day for about four years straight, I wrote about a new cocktail. Um, I started digging through history books about cocktails, started reaching out to craft brands and really just kind of fell in love with it. My wife and I have always been big foodies. And so, you know, we always try to stay up on the cocktail trends and, this is 2009-ish, 2008, 2009. So it's around the time that the cocktail renaissance is finally making its way into the Midwest. You know, it's not quite as concentrated out on the coasts in Chicago as it was. And so, yeah, so at, as I wrote this blog, I started having some liquor brands reach out to me and be like, hey, we'd love for you to review uh, one of our new releases and started picking up more and more freelance writing gigs, talking about either just like specific alcohols or cocktail culture. Uh, at the same time, my wife and I started running a bar program for the local theater where the two of us actually met. <laughs> oh, nice. And yeah, and kind of the same thing. Just we really wanted to focus on elevating the drinking culture. You know, Dodge City is a town of 30,000. It's, you know, not a big city by any means. And we were just like, you know, there are so many amazing more cocktails out there than just your Jack and Cokes and your screwdrivers. And so over the course of a couple of years, we ran this bar program for the local nonprofit theater and started bringing more and more craft distilleries in, started, you know, bringing more and more craft cocktails in. And at the same time was getting more disillusioned with my day job. Um, was just, I'm sure like you were just, I, I didn't have a whole lot of fulfillment. You know, it, it was a great company to work for. They treated me well. It just, you know, I was, I was not feeling the energy and then one day I was, uh, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. I was about to do, use passive voice. <laughs> Someone, <laughs> I'm not going to um, edit your, the, uh, your, your remarks. I'm not going to 
uh, get out the, pull out the red pins. So don't, don't worry. Yeah. And be like, ooh, passive voice. Incorrect. <laughs> um, well, so one day, a an acquaintance at the time of mine, Hayes Kelman, reached out to me and basically had said, hey, you know spirits, you know agriculture. Well, Hayes was a farmer um, along with his father and one of their business partners. And he's like, you know, the three of us have gotten in together and we've decided that we are going to start a distillery. Um, Hayes has always been very kind of driven by the ideal of vert- idea of vertical integration. And, you know, we've been growing, I think, I may be wrong. I think he's either fourth or fifth generation farmer of this land. And it's like, you know, he saw it two ways. You either start a cattle feeding operation or you start a distillery. Like, you know, what's a way that we can use our grain other than simply just growing it, selling it as a commodity, doing it again. And so the three of them had come up with this idea for Boot Hill Distillery in Dodge. And he had reached out and was like, you know, would you have any interest in, you know, occasionally just chatting with us and being like, yeah, you're doing a good job on this or no, this needs a little bit of work. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, that sounds amazing. I I would, you know, I'd love to, I'd be honored. And then about two months later, I happened to notice that they posted on a local job board that they were looking for a part-time assistant distiller and a part-time events manager. And I called my wife immediately and I was like, hey, I have this idea. I I want to see if they would combine those two jobs into a full-time position and hire me. And she's like, yeah, you know, let's, let's see what happens. And so I called Hayes and basically gave him that pitch of, I know you're looking for two part-time people. What would you think about bringing me on, bringing me on as a distiller, and then also as your director of marketing? And he's like, yeah, let's, let's give it a shot. And so after seven years in the PR and marketing game, I stepped away and was hired by Boot Hill Distillery uh, to be one of their distillers and to basically run their entire marketing program. <laughs> and at that point, so you'd been getting like in your, your feet into the cocktail world and, and the world of spirits, but had, had you come close to distilling at that point? No, no, I, I never, I never had, um, you know, by that point that had been about six years, either running a bar program or doing freelance writing. And so like I had a, I had an intellectual understanding of it, but as I always tell people who are coming into the industry, having an intellectual understanding and knowing how to do it are two very different things. <laughs> and so I don't, I genuinely don't think I could have lucked out with a better first distillery to be at, honestly, because we hadn't opened yet. Um, uh, Boot Hill Distillery, if if you're not familiar, is in the old city hall in Dodge City that was built in the 20s. And it is a jaw-dropping space. I mean, it's at the, literally on the top of Boot Hill in downtown Dodge City. It's this gorgeous old um, neo-missionary style architecture. But restoring an old building had, you know, thrown up some roadblocks. And so they hadn't opened as early as they wanted. And so I was able to be hired two months, a month, a month or two months before the opening that had been scheduled. And because Hayes and the other investors and the other employees didn't have any distilling experience either, it was all of us learning together. 
Um, and one thing that, you know, credit goes to Hayes and uh, his father, Roger, is they also gave us the time to learn. Um, you know, the, the rule we always had was, you know, we're not going to put anything into a bottle that we wouldn't pay for ourselves. And so you have a group of people sitting down and just here, learning how to make cuts and learning proper fermentation techniques. And, um, you know, Hayes had gone around and visited some other distilleries around the country and done some shadowing. And so he was able to pass that knowledge on to me, but it really was a trial by fire. Okay. Let's see if you actually know how to do this. I'm, I'm I might be misremembering, but I, I think I chatted with Hayes for a, a vodka story because Boot Hill won best in show yes. for, for vodka a while back. And, and, and I think he was saying that when, when you all first, whenever that opening was that it, it, I guess it was like kind of early because it was like uh, a festival going on and you're trying to like do something and there was all, there really weren't any products in bottles at the time, but it was like, Hey, let's see what the reaction is here. And that's, yeah. And that's exactly what we ended up doing. We actually, kind of used it as a impromptu uh, group study because we had two versions of what would eventually become the base of Boot Hill's Red Eye Whiskey, White Whiskey, and Bourbon. And then we had two versions of what would become the vodka. And, you know, nothing was in bottles. We couldn't sell any bottles. We couldn't sell any drinks. All we could do was pour samples. And so, the pity pity the family and friends that had to work the tasting bar that day because we didn't have our conditioning in there it was shoulder to shoulder constant flow for several hours but every person who we handed we or who we handed a sample to we handed a little survey to and we were like tell us which one you like and you know on one of those rare occasions all of the data happened to fall on the ones that we liked at the time and then that's what informed our recipe development as we went along yes. and, and so you spend how many years there uh i was there for three years okay and and then so tell me a little bit about the the journey from there to tint ward yeah definitely um you know again boot hill was amazing um i had a blast working there. I, I really loved working for Hayes and the Kelman family. I just kind of started to get an itch. Um, like we, you know, we were established, we were winning all these awards, you know, we were getting a bunch of great press. And uh, my wife and I son was actually getting ready to graduate high school. And, you know, the two of us got to thinking about, hey, you know, we didn't want to move. We didn't want to go anywhere while he was still in high school, you know, like let him finish out his under finish out and graduate. And by pure coincidence, I, you know, I wasn't even actively looking, but um, John Wilcox, who's a good friend of mine, a former head distiller at Rogue, uh, he had taken a head distiller position at 10th Ward out in Maryland. Well, during his time there, he ended up getting hired by a distillery in Ireland. Uh, and so one day I get a text from John that just basically says, hey, I, I don't know if you're interested in leaving Boot Hill at all, but 
you know, I'm leaving 10th Ward. He goes, I, I think, you know, their style, the things that they do would be up your alley. Like, I really think you would enjoy, enjoy what's going on out here. And my wife and I kind of looked at each other and like, yeah, this is kind of the perfect time. You know, let's, let's jump at the opportunity since we have it. And so had interviewed at 10th Ward, um, which is in Frederick, Maryland. So yeah, going from dead center of the country out to the East coast, uh, just outside of Baltimore and DC. Um, again, really, we were really impressed with what 10th Ward was doing. Um, you know, we were doing really good whiskeys, really good gin, um, at Boot Hill, but I was like, I kind of want to do something unique, you know, like let's, let's find a way that, that, you know, maybe I can stretch my creative wings a little bit and do some really funky things. And, and 10th Ward, fit, you know, fit that bill really well. Uh, so yeah, so October of 2018, we packed up and moved cross country to Frederick to 10th Ward. And yeah, uh, that was kind of exactly what I wanted was being able to go in and, and, you know, they had just launched their absinthe. John had brought that to market. And that made me really excited. The idea of being an absinthe drinker, enjoying well-made absinthe. It was really exciting to be like, okay, this is my chance to kind of see, to see how to do that. And uh, came into an existing whiskey program and got to help bring that off the ground. And then was able to develop um, several new products, which again, we got great feedback on and, and being so close to DC and being so close to Baltimore was amazing. And just Frederick, Maryland also in general has one of the most vibrant craft beverage uh, cultures in the country. I mean, there's more than five distilleries just in the city. There's over a dozen breweries. There's cideries, meaderies, wineries, like just within Frederick County, you have this amazing and the collaboration that went on was just absolutely brilliant. And, and yeah, so that, that really kind of gave me the chance to take what I had learned at Boot Hill and expand upon it and really created some just absolutely bonkers mm -hmm. products. Uh, like one of the ones that I'm most proud of, one was our Jennifer style gin, which we took our uh, malted rye whiskey base, blended it with a molasses base, and then did a pot and vapor distillation on it and basically created like a Dutch style Jennifer. Uh, used a lot of local ingredients. That was one thing at 10th Ward that was a lot of fun and was cool was we focused a lot on foraging and finding native plants and oh, botanicals wow. that, yeah, that we could utilize. And, so yeah, and then another one that I really enjoyed was a one-off for our club that was called Papa Amaro. So Papa's uh, super, super interesting. They're called uh, North America's native tropical fruit, um, sometimes called a redneck banana. <laughs> <laughs> but they are native to the U.S. And they're, they kind of look like mangoes on the outside, but on the inside, they're this very custardy texture. And they taste like mango and pineapple and banana all together. And within Maryland, there has been a lot of increased attention given to the pawpaw and work being done with that. And so we decided to create this Amaro with pawpaw flesh as the base flavoring agent. 
And then same thing, focused on creating something that utilized a bunch of different other native botanicals to really create something that was of its place. Yeah. Uh, well, so then I guess talk about going from from that where you're just, you know, kind of in a like experimental playground, it sounds like, to to your role now as head distiller at Whiskey Del Bach, where you guys I mean, the whiskey is in the name, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the what's what what was the thought process, and uh, you know, how how can you find excitement? And I guess there's a lot of ways you can find excitement in just making whiskey, but but having been in that mindset of I want to go, you know, uh, paint uh a crazy picture with all these different kinds of tools i'm gonna stop rambling right. now and let you talk about that <laughs> yeah no definitely um you know i think i think like a lot of people you know the the pandemic hit and that that makes you do a lot of kind of reassessment um i think a lot of us did a lot of looking at you know and what i and what i doing right now is it fulfilling you know is this is this what I want to be doing in perpetuity? Is there another direction I want to head? And at the time, it you know, I'd been at 10th Ward almost three years. You'll, you'll notice a pattern starting to develop. I wasn't going to say anything, but... Yeah. <laughs> you said yeah, it. Yeah, it was three years, um, <laughs> 2018 to 2021. Uh, just, yeah, I was, you know, Monica, the, the founder and owner of 10th Ward, we had just had a conversation and was just kind of like, you know, where I think I want to be going professionally, you know, I, I, I'm going to take a sabbatical. I'm going to take some time and I'm going to think about, you know, where, where we want to go. And it was never a question of staying within distilling because like that was something about being a boot hill was that just clicked. Like as much as I loved being a journalist, as much as I did enjoy doing you know, public relations and marketing, there was something about distilling that for the first time ever, I felt like this is what I want to do. Like this is no matter where I may be, no matter what I might be making, this is, this is the industry I want to be in. And this is what I want to be working with. It was just kind of this perfect marriage of, you know, artistry and science and working with your hands. And it just, I was like, you know, do do I want to start my own distillery, you know, find investors, start something new? Do I want to become a consultant and, you know, help other people, you know, secure their dream? Do I just want to find maybe another distillery to be at? And so I spent a couple of months doing consulting work, um, helped out with a couple of projects on different sides of the country, whether it was just like running numbers for them or, you know, doing some uh, recipe development, uh, troubleshooting fermentations, things like that. And while I really enjoyed it, um, I got to do some education. I got to do some training with some distillers groups, which was a lot of fun. Pretty quickly, I found myself wanting to be back in the still room. Um, just happened to be, you know, talking to my wife and I was like, you know, I, I missed the routine. I missed the I, I know exactly what I'm doing every day when I get up. Um, and she's like, yeah, no, that make, makes sense. And also from a purely selfish standpoint, I hated chasing my paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> like being steadily employed means so long as I am 
fulfilling my duties as head distiller, I am going to continue to get paid versus as a consultant. Okay, well, this project's finished. Now I need to find somebody that I could. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that as a, you know, as a writer, the, the times that I've been a freelancer, it's uh, in a way it's thrilling, but it's also like, you know, you, you got to hustle. Um <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and ask yourself sometimes like, is the, is the hustle that I'm putting in on this thing really worth it? Um, and it's, it's kind of nice to, like you said, to, to wake up and know like, okay, I, I need to do these things today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So I did that for a couple of months and, you know, we were fortunate, fortunate enough that I was able to take my time after I had decided that, yes, I want to go back into distilling and started interviewing at distilleries all over the country. And um, again, being lucky enough in the position that I was in to take the time to be picky <laughs> and, yeah. you know, to be able to go, no, this isn't where I want to be, or I don't feel like this is a good culture fit. And Maggie Campbell um, at Mount Gay, who is a dear, dear friend of mine and one of my mentors. And I would say, I want to be Maggie when I grow up. Uh <laughs> happened to be doing some consulting work here at Whiskey Del Bach. Um, they had recently lost their head distiller, Veronica. Ironically, she had gone back to the East Coast where she was from to be closer <laughs> to the family. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she's like, have you, have you ever considered the, the Southwest? And I was like, you know, I'm going to be honest. No, it's never really been high on my list. But, you know, if the job's right, if, if it's where I feel I need to be, then, then yeah, I'm definitely, definitely interested. And so she put me into contact with our co-founder, Stephen Paul, and our CEO, Kent Cheeseman. Applied for the job, started the interview process, uh, and just absolutely fell in love with it. Um, I was aware of Whiskey Del Bach. You know, I, I had heard a very positive reputation um, I had never actually had the chance to try any of their their product. And so I was actually really excited when I discovered that uh, at the time, unfortunately, we're not there anymore, but at the time we were distributed in Maryland. Uh -huh. And so I was actually able to get my hands on a couple of bottles and sit and kind of analyze them and go through them before I started this interview process. And, and yeah, um, in July of last year, they were like, okay, you know, we want to bring you and your wife out to see Tucson, you know, make sure that you're both on board with this. And my wife and I came out and just the, the desert is just so heart stoppingly beautiful. Like we, we weren't really prepared for it. Um, you know, we grew up in Western Kansas which is a lot of scrub. It's very flat. You know, we grew up close to the front range in Colorado. In our mind, that's what, that's what Arizona was. Mm. Um, like it was just, Oh, it's, it's going to be a lot of, it's gonna be a lot of dirt. It's going to be a lot of Brown. It's going to be a lot of like olive greens. And we happened to land late, late the night that we came out. And then we woke up the next morning and our hotel room looked out on the Santa Catalina mountains and it was just kind of love at first sight. It was like, this place is stunning. And yeah, and part of what also drew me here was, you know, at Boot Hill having made a little bit of everything, at 10th Ward having made a little bit of everything and made some just truly kind of off the wall things. That was an argument that I had with myself for quite a while was, do I want to specialize 
or do I want to keep doing a little bit of everything? And just the idea of being able to focus down on a single product, American single malt whiskey, and be the best that you possibly could be at one thing just seemed really appealing to me. Um, you know, I think had I come at, from the other way, like if I had started out at a distillery that specialized in one thing, I'd be dying to get out and try my hand at everything. But, um, you know, it's maybe like the prodigal son who went out and sowed their wild seeds <laughs> of doing everything crazy that you could imagine. Now it's like, now we're going to do one thing and we're going to do one thing really, really well. And, you know, enough can't be said about um, our co-founders, Stephen and Amanda Paul. Uh, you know, they founded Whiskey Del Bach 11 years ago now and had built this incredible reputation and, you know, through hard work and just amazingly wonderful people. And they, br they brought Kent on uh, from High West for it to become our CEO and also I always say Kent's kind of the ideal CEO, and this is going to sound like brown nosing, and I promise it is. Okay. <laughs> Just because he's he's very he's very like hire the right people, let them let them do their job. He's very hands off. He's not a micromanager, but he is also a hard ass when he needs to be. Mm. And you mm. know, having had in the past at other positions micromanager bosses, it's very liberating to have someone that's like. No, I, I trust you to do and your team and, and the staff to do what needs to be done. But also, if you don't meet expectations, you're going to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and whiskey. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, you know, let's talk a little bit about what you what you are doing now. I know you guys have the, the global cask collection. I think you've released two out of three of those products. Yes. And, and there's another one Correct. coming down the road here soon. In December. Right? Yeah. 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 So, so yeah. So like I had mentioned, obviously, so um, Whiskey Del Bach for the past 11 years has been doing American single malt whiskey and been doing American single malt whiskey very well. And kind of one of the things that was put to myself, excuse me, and the rest of the production team was, you know, let's, like you talked about, let's find ways to really showcase how much variety there can be in American single malt. Uh, you know, from the outside looking in, it's to be like, oh, it's bourbon. Oh, it's rye. It's, it's American single malt. How interesting can it be? How much variation can you put on it? And one of the things that the past production teams have done was a release that was called Distiller's Cuts. And Typically, those were unique blends, uh, usually with unique mash bills or a mix of our standard mash bills with some special finishing barrels. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, Whiskey Delbach put out a PX Sherry finished single malt. That was one of the most popular that was ever put out. And then a couple of years later, they put out a Calvados that was also similarly really, really well received. And so this discussion that had been going on before I ever came along was, you know, how do we, how do we take the success of these distillers cuts and reach a wider audience, reach, reach a wider base. And so we sat down and we started looking at like, okay, you know, these were very popular distillers cut releases, you know, how feasible is it for us to get our hands on specific barrels in perpetuity? Like we don't want to, you know, launch a new, 
core product. And then a year later, we can't release it again because we can't get our hands on the barrels. <laughs> and so, yeah, so we just, we all got together and decided, yeah, we, we want to do PX Sherry finish because it really complements um, our base single malt, what we call our classic. And then the Calvados was another one that was like those brighter apple notes, that kind of more punchy note that you get from a Calvados barrel kind of bounces out those heavier stone fruits. And so that's why we decided to launch this global cast collection. So they get released at the same time every year. So every April, our Frontera comes out. The Frontera is the single malt that is finished in the uh, Pedro Jimenez Sherry Botas. Uh, then back in August, we released our Normandy, which will come out every August. And that is finished in the uh, Colorado Sparrows. And then, yes, the third release that we have coming up in the Global Cast Collection used to be called Winter Release. Uh, now it is called Ode to Isla. Uh, it's called the winter release because typically released it in winter. Uh, you know, some brief history on Whiskey Del Bach, kind of what we're known for is our mesquited, not heated single malt. So what we call our classic is just a 100% malted barley, no smoke, you know, kind of what you would call like a meat and potatoes. That's uh, not I wouldn't call it meat and potatoes because it's better than that. But okay. What you would call like a standard, like what you'd call a standard American single malt. It's gotcha. it's it's malted barley aged bottled. Um, but Dorado, which we're known for, was born out of Stephen's love for the Sonoran Desert. And before he founded Whiskey Del Bach, he was a carpenter for 30 years specifically working or most well known for working with mesquite and his wife elaine actually had the idea while they were out drinking scotch one night because that was their drink you know people dry malt over peat has anyone considered drying malt over mesquite and so stephen kind of got obsessed with the idea taught himself how to malt taught himself how to distill and our dorado is this blend of unsmoked malt and what we call our mesquited malt and at the start, you know, this is a very long roundabout way to come back to the original point of at the start of this, that Dorado, that smoked product was really, really, really smoky. I mean, it was a smoke bomb. Um, over the years, we've adjusted that smoke down uh, to make it a little more accessible to kind of the general public because, you know, smoke is very divisive. But there were still people who loved that, that big smoke. And so every winter, Whiskey Del Bach would release this smoke bomb, what we would call winter release. It was, was essentially what we would call like our love letter to Isla, you know, those mm. heavily peated Isla scotches. And so that comes out this December. And that one is one I'm particularly fond of because I love smoke and I love smoked whiskeys. Uh, but that is a blend of three different unique mash bills. Again, obviously all including... Um, I mean, they're all 100% malted barley, but one is a 100% unsmoked barley. The other is a 60-40 of smoked and unsmoked. And the other mash bill is 100% mesquited malt. Those all then went in to age in new American white oak, got blended together, and then were finished in bourbon barrels. And so what has happened is you have this massive blossom of smoke right on the front 
but then it tapers off and just kind of lingers there. A lot of people compared it to like a bonfire in the desert in the middle of winter. So that will be the third one that gets released. Uh, so yeah, so just kind of this idea of how do we take something very American, which is American single malt whiskey, and utilize these more traditional styles to create something that's unlike anything else out there right now. Those, those, I'll say those all sound good, but that, that winter one sounds like heaven to me because I'm also a big fan of the smoke. So um, yeah. I'm going to uh, have to find a way to get my hands on that. <laughs> I'm just going to say, we'll have to get a bottle into your hands. It, uh, it's, it's probably one of my favorites that we make every year. Um because it is, it is just this big blossom of smoke. And what's interesting about mesquite is it doesn't have that same iodine band-aidy note that you get from peat. It is much more akin to like barbecue. Uh, it's, it's always a struggle when people are like, well, what does mesquite smoke taste like? Well, mesquite smoke tastes like mesquite. It is such a unique flavor profile that when you taste it you're like oh my god yeah that's barbecue that's that's someone out at a bonfire in a chilly night and so yeah so so we're we're really pleased with all all three of them have turned out we've been really just humbled and flattered with the reception of all of them like it's just been pretty much unanimous praise which as you know, can be hard, can be hard to find sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. put yourself out there creatively and, you know, if everybody liked the same thing, uh, everything would be pretty boring. <laughs> yeah. The last time we were emailing, you said there were some other things you couldn't talk about yet. Is there anything else you're able to talk about? This is something that we've been really excited about. We've been working, it, God, over a year now very hush hush about it uh you know as, as you know everything's kind of been hit and miss for the past couple of years for craft distilleries um the economy's been very difficult the uh you know getting people to go out doesn't happen as often and one of the things that we're very proud of at whiskey Delbach is our american single malts are 100 percent handmade uh, we, you know, we mill, mash, ferment, uh, distill, age, blend, and bottle here on site. And we also, we like to take care of our employees. Uh, you know, we, we have a comfortable staff level. We, we make sure that they aren't working a pauper's wage. And American single malt whiskey and single malt whiskeys in general, you know, tend to be a premium product. Um, they, they don't sell high volume. So we started the discussion of, is there a way that we could create a sourced product that still held true to our values, still held true to our ethos of paying homage to the American Southwest and being 100% transparent about it. And we started talking about rye. And, you know, for, from a personal standpoint, I've always had a soft spot for rye. It's actually probably my favorite whiskey. And I say that knowing that I make American single malt and I yeah. adore it. Yeah. Uh, but I just, I really like rye. I like that punchiness. I like that spiciness. And I love the history of it. And, and Stephen and Amanda felt the same way uh, that American rye, you know, it's the original 
American whiskey. It has such a long storied tradition. And we were like, let's let's see if we can get our hands on some rye. Let's set it down on our own oak. Let's let it age. And let's see if we can create a rye that is good, that is kind of like with our single malts, unlike anything else that is out there on the market. And that would sell in volume that, you know, could, could kind of help keep us, keep us producing what we're known for, what we're famous for. And so, yeah, so we started experimenting. Uh, we got our hands on some MGP 95.5, uh, two-year-old, three-year-old, and we knew we wanted a little bit of that mesquite smoke in there. And so we took a blend of that two and three-year-old and we set it down in our freshly harvested uh, mesquited single malt barrels. So basically as we were harvesting our barrels uh, for our core products, we would take some of this rye and we put it right back into those barrels. And even within just a couple of months, you started to get just this little hint of mesquite on the rye. And it was interesting because if you're not careful with mesquite, it, it overpowers. It can become very stringent. It can become very unbalanced. But with that high spiciness of the 95% rye mash bill, the floral notes really came out. And it actually, interestingly enough, softened some of those punchier black spice note or black pepper spice notes from the rye. And we weren't sure where we were going to go from there. And we kind of had the inspiration of admittedly looking at what uh, Cascade Hollow was doing, uh, what, you know, George Dickel, their rye, they, it's MGP rye that they age and they finish. And that got us to looking at the Franklin County method of, you know, filtering your whiskey over a bed of sugar maple charcoal. And it occurred to us, since we malt our own mesquite malt here in house, we have an almost unlimited supply of mesquite charcoal. Mm. And so we took this rye that was finished in our mesquite barrels and we basically filtered it, filtered it over a bed of mesquite charcoal, proofed it down to 92. And what we have is what we are calling our Sentinel straight rye whiskey. Awesome. Yeah. 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 And so we're, it, you know, it was, it was a lot of discussion and a lot of heart to heart because, you know, again, taking pride in, taking pride in doing everything ourselves. And also, as you know, thankfully we're getting away from it, but there was for a long time and still is to an extent, a distaste for source product. And, you know, a lot of that can be laid at the feet of misleading marketing and deceptive PR tricks of, oh, this is my old family recipe that <laughs> we found in a barn. Oh, yeah. really? You're your, your great-great-grandfather was making MGP 95% rye, huh? Right. <laughs> so, and actually, if you'll, if I can pause one moment, I can actually grab a bottle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So, yeah. So, I don't know how well you can see Yeah, that. I can see that pretty well, actually. It's a so, good-looking yeah, owl. So, yeah. So, we've got the horned owl, which is native to the Sonoran. And we've got mentioned how specifically on the front it's finished in Del Bach barrels. And then on the back, we basically have kind of the conversation that we just had of, you know, we wanted to create something that 
we were proud of that you know we were proud to put our name on that we were going to be transparent that it's a sourced product but we have done our own unique finishing and blending on it and so yeah so this is actually anticipated to drop the first week of november okay awesome well yeah we'll we'll hold off <laughs> until then so we don't break any news outside of out of out of that date um but that's that's Appreciate exciting it. yeah no that's really cool yeah yeah, we're, we're very excited. Again, like just focusing on the transparency of it on the back label, we say distilled and aged in Indiana, uh, finished, blended and bottled by Whiskey Del Bach in Tucson, Arizona. So we're, we're really, really excited about that. Um, obviously, again, single malts are our bread and butter. It's what we love making, but this so, is we're pretty excited about this, too. So then what's the what's the price tag on that? Um, we are suggesting thirty nine ninety nine. Okay, that sounds that's what what I was gonna guess. So that yeah, that sounds right. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's especially when you consider like our core, our classic, which is which is the lowest price of our core releases is um, fifty. Okay, it's a little a little more accessible and kind of gets you introduced to the Del the Delbach style of whiskey making and. That'll that'll be fun. Um, I, I do want to go back to to American single malt though. Um, mm -hmm. It's it you know it now seems very likely that TTB at any point it will hopefully add American single malt whiskey to its standards of identity. Uh, from your perspective, just like how important would that be? And then also you know what what else is it going to take to to lift up American single malt? I mean, obviously, we're incredibly, incredibly excited about it. Um, getting the TTB designation, I feel like, first and foremost, legitimizes the style. Um, you know, a lot of credit goes to, you know, the, the, the people who really led the charge of American single malt whiskey, like Westward, Westland, uh, McCarthy's, Balcones, Stranahan's, and as I'm sure you know, it doesn't matter what whiskey you make in the U.S. If you're making whiskey, everyone thinks you make bourbon. Yeah. Uh, you know the question you always get, like, oh, what, what, what do you, what, what kind of bourbon do you make? Right. Well, we don't make bourbon. <laughs> we make American single malt whiskey. Um, so you know, first and foremost, it legitimizes us as a real, as a real designated spirit. Um, it sets us apart from like Irish single malt, Scottish single malt, and just like anything else, it helps clarify for consumers. Um, you know, I, I think we all kind of perhaps overly complain about regulations within the industry, but there is something to be said for there being set guidelines on designations. And so that means that obviously if you taste a bottle of uh, whiskey Del Bach, American single malt is going to taste nothing like Westland's American single malt. We use different yeasts, different styles of barley, different aging techniques, but it's still kind of within that area. And, you know, it is just it, a lot of work obviously has been done <laughs> to get to this point. Um, you know, I, Steve Hawley has been obviously, you know, gets a lot of credit for really leading the charge and kind of being our beacon through this entire process. But, it, it again, I, I think it just, it, it helps educate consumers. It helps make people realize that there are some, 
absolutely amazing single malt whiskeys being made right here in the U.S. Uh, again, most people associate it with Scotch and, and Irish whiskey, and more and more Japanese whiskey as well. But it's yeah, I, I think it's just something that we can, as an industry, look to and go. This shows we are so much more than one style of whiskey in the U.S. I I'd like to close i guess kind of going back to where we started uh but just like a different spin on on that first question that i asked you and it's uh what's your advice to someone who is uh maybe in like a similar boat to where you were when you were just about to take your job at uh or, or, or interested in your first distilling job you know what 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 do you say to somebody like that who's like i'm thinking about like quitting this other career uh and, and I want to be a distiller or I want to work for a distillery? Um, it's risky. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I hate to, I, I'm not trying to be one of those people that, that by all accounts, I'm very successful within this industry. And I am incredibly thankful for that. I've been very lucky. Um, I've been at the right place at the right time. <laughs> and, uh, but I would encourage people to do it. Um, you know, be be open, be willing to learn, be hungry for the knowledge. Um, it is risky. Uh, even with bigger craft distilleries, um, it's a volatile market. There's a lot of competition. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who who aren't going into this industry with the best interests of the industry in mind. Uh, but that is also part and parcel, I think, of why ACSA is so important is, you know, we are working to elevate the industry as a whole and being able to provide points of information and points of guidance and points of mentorship. So, um, yeah, no, I, I would say if you can, if you can jump at it, you know, if you have that, excuse me, if you have that opportunity, you know, and you're able to take it, take it um, again, I I recognize I'm in a very lucky position that should that first distillery that I have, you know, if I had gone to another distillery that wasn't as successful as Boot Hill, you know, I'd probably be in a very different position. Yeah. <laughs> but, and again, that, that it's not, that's not for me to, that's not for me to poo poo it. Like it's, I don't, like I said earlier, I don't want to be doing anything else. Like I, I love, what I do, even on some of the most frustrating days, I wake up and I still get to be like, I make whiskey for a living. <laughs> um, other than that, I would say, you know, if you're, if you're going to take that risk, if you're going to jump in, ask questions, make yourself vulnerable. Um, there is, there is an inherent egoism in what we do. Uh, any creative endeavor is essentially at the core of it, us saying, what I make is so good. You do, you should pay me for what I make. <laughs> right. But and I catch myself. I catch myself in that trap sometimes as well of of getting egotistical, getting complacent, getting you know too too caught up you know on my own Kool Aid. But I also feel the only reason I've been able to be as successful as I have been is not being able not being afraid to say I need help. Um, the number of times, even now, I've been distilling for seven years now, 
I still have moments where it's like, I have no idea what this is, <laughs> but I know who people, I know people who might. <laughs> and so, you know, feel comfortable reaching out to others in the industry. Um, another one of the reasons I fall in love with this industry and don't want to leave it is, you know, PR and marketing and advertising, things like that is very cutthroat. You will occasionally find unpleasant people like that in this industry, but I would say 99% of the time, every person within the craft distilling industry that I have talked to has been there for other people, has believed in that we're not fighting over pieces of the pie, we're fighting to make the pie bigger. That, yes, I will listen to you, I will give advice, and I will put you into contact with people who can help you. And again, I, I can't stress that enough, that humility... Humility is difficult, but it's necessary because um, there's there's always someone who is more experienced than you, someone who's smarter than you, and someone who may have, by pure coincidence, faced the exact same issue that you're facing right now. And so that would probably be my biggest, you know, my biggest piece of advice is don't act like you know everything. There's always someone out there who's going to humble you but also have the confidence in what you're doing to push those barriers. Well, that's our program for today. Thanks again to Mark A. Viertaler for joining us. You can learn more about Whiskey Del Bach at whiskeydelbach.com. And you can find Mark on Instagram where he's Whiskey Icarus, and that's whiskey without an E. We'll be back soon with some special episodes with some of ACSA's founding members. Until then, Thanks for listening and cheers.